Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. It is good to see you guys here. If you want to grab a Bible, we are finishing the book of Nehemiah. I love walking through different books. It kind of anchors us and takes us on a journey. And today that journey ends in Nehemiah chapter 13. And it may be good that it's chapter 13 because it has a 13 feel. Chapter 13 of Nehemiah, just things go wrong. All the good stuff God does, all the great things that happen in people, it kind of starts sliding downhill. And you wonder, as you get to the end of this great book, because so much in Nehemiah is like, wow. God puts this vision in his heart, in Nehemiah's heart, to go back to Jerusalem, his hometown that's in a mess. And God puts this holy ambition, this holy vision in his life. And he heads back to his hometown, and God gives him all these resources. I mean, the king of Persia opens up all his forests for Nehemiah to use as resources to rebuild a city that doesn't belong to the king of Persia. It's amazing what Nehemiah does. And then Nehemiah will call the people to repent, and immediately they're like repenting, and they're worshiping. And in chapter 12, it's one big party. We didn't go over chapter 12, but if you read it, it's absolutely one big party. And people are actually dancing on the wall that they just built. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And if this was like a Hollywood movie, I would stop there. I'd stop with chapter 12. What's going on, guys? You know, I'm ADD. You can't do that to me. Something's going on up there. They're trying to mess me up. It's an amazing book. But what do you do when all the work that God has done in you and all that God's doing around you just seems to end in the wrong direction and it's unexpected? All the investment that you make, maybe it's investment in your kids. It could be investment in a business. It could be you've overcome a sin in your life and you think it's in the past, right? And it comes rushing back. And all the progress that you had made all the impact that God had done. You're looking at your life and you're just wondering, what is it gonna take to change this situation? That's chapter 13. And so let me give you a little recap. If you're not very familiar with Nehemiah, let me share a little bit about what Nehemiah is about. It's actually Ezra part two. There's a book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they actually used to be one big book. Because see, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is really not about Ezra and Nehemiah. It's also about this guy, Zerubbabel. And what happens is the Babylonians come in, into Judah. Judah was a nation, and the Babylonians come in, and they take them off into exile. This is about the year 500 B.C. And so the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, is taken off into exile. They're now slaves in a land that's not their own. They're 800 miles away from home. And suddenly, after the Babylonians come in, what happens is the Persians come in and wipe out the Babylonians, and this king Cyrus, who's a Persian king, says, you know what, Israelites... Time for you guys to go home. It's a movement of God. Touching this king, and then the Israelites start heading home, and they start heading home. First person was Zerubbabel. And he goes back to restore the temple, and the temple gets restored. And then another king of Persia says, hey, let's send another group back, and that's Ezra. 
And Ezra goes back. Now, the temple's been rebuilt. The altar's been rebuilt. But see, the people need the law of God, and so he reestablishes the Torah. He kind of brings some, some changes to the people so that they're worshiping God. And that's the second return to Jerusalem. And then finally, the book of Nehemiah, which is the third in a series of people. And this time, it's not the King Cyrus, it's Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah goes to Artaxerxes and says, listen, we want to rebuild the city. We're going to do it. This celebration happens in chapter 6. The wall is rebuilt. And from chapter 7 all the way to chapter 13, it's not the rebuilding of the city. It's a rebuilding of God's people. And it's amazing. In chapter 10, they all repent after listening to the Bible being read for essentially like six to seven hours. Ezra gets up and he just reads the Bible. Could you imagine that in a service? Just getting up here for a couple hours, just reading the Bible. And the people absolutely love it. And they're repenting and they're worshiping. And they say in chapter 10, hey, all the laws that we have ignored, God, we're going to obey again. We're going to reestablish the Sabbath. We're going to give to the temple. We're not going to intermarry among the nations. We want a pure heart and a pure worship and a pure love for God. Chapter 12, celebration. Get ready, guys. We're about to read chapter 13. And what you find, and and the reason I'm setting you up for this is it's going to be a, a long chapter to read. And what I want you to see is all of the reforms that they put in place in chapter 10, they're all going to fall apart. And what are those reforms? Hey, we're going to make the temple the center of life. We're going to give again. We're going to worship again. What we find is the temple is now in ruins. There's actually this guy, Tobiah, that's got an apartment in the temple. And they've taken out all the tithes. And they've given this guy who doesn't worship God basically his own apartment. And what Nehemiah is going to do is he's going to go in there and throw out the guy's furniture. It's it's kind of funny what he does. And then they're going to reestablish the Sabbath because no one's obeying the Sabbath. And then finally what we see is the people are intermarrying among the nations. And so the hearts of their sons and daughters is being taken away. And so essentially what we're going to see is Nehemiah's going to kind of feel the weight of the spiritual brokenness of the people. You're going to see Nehemiah really starting to, to have that righteous indignation, that righteous anger, and it ends kind of anticlimactically. And we don't know what's going to happen. And so let's jump into You guys ready? Nehemiah, and I'm going to try to pronounce some of these names as good as I can. Nehemiah chapter 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 1, and we will read the entire chapter. So get ready. Get ready. Here we go. It's good to see you guys. Thanks. Verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1. And on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite, Moabite, should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam to curse them. And yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashab, the priest who appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes, the grain, the wine, the oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. Now, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. Now, this is Nehemiah speaking. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked to leave the king, and I came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. 
And I was, I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber and I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back the vessel of the house of God and the grain offerings and the frankincense. And I also found, I found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. And so the Levites are now, and the singers who did the work, they're each in their own field. And so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the wine and the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed his treasurers over the storehouses. Shemaliah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Padiah, one of the Levites, and as their assistants, assistant, Hena, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, maybe? I've said it like eight times, I still can't do it. For they, were cons- for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. And in those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, also grapes and figs and wine and all kinds of loads that they had brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they had sold the food, Tyrannians who had lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, hey, what is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not our fathers act this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on this city? And now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And then the merchants and the sellers and all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside of the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 23. And in those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to your sons, or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoadad, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horite. 
and therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood, the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And thus I cleanse from them everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and have provided the wood for the offering at the appointed time and the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, as we look at this passage and we, we see the change that has taken place in these people and what Nehemiah has done and what you've done through Nehemiah, Father, we can see a representation of our own lives, that the good work that you do in us, that you're faithful to complete, sometimes there's days of darkness. We're all the fruit that you have done, Father, and what you're doing in our life, it just seems hard and difficult and things seem to be moving in the opposite direction. And Father, we wonder, what, what do we need? And there could be someone here today that is in that place of wondering, what do I need for my faith to be alive? For my vision of God to be clear? And so Father, would you just teach us through this passage, guide us, direct us, help us to see, help us to know you more in Jesus' name, amen. So the question becomes, what, what's gonna happen next? You know, and what does the nation of Israel need for true renewal and revival to take place? Because there's an amazing event that's just happened in this story. Israel's repented. They've made all these covenantal promises to God. God, we're gonna follow you. We're gonna pursue you. We're gonna love you. We're gonna obey the Sabbath. We're not gonna intermarry. We're gonna honor the temple. And what you see suddenly in chapter 13 is all of those promises within a short period of time, have collapsed. And what's interesting is Nehemiah is not there. We don't know how long he was gone, but for some reason he heads back to Babylon, and then he comes back. And when he comes back, I imagine a guy that has this much faith and has seen God do that much, he's coming back and thinking, man, it's gonna be great. What a party. I mean, I left and they were partying on the walls. They were worshiping God. I mean, the temple was rolling. He comes back and now Tobiah has moved into the temple. Now, if you don't know Tobiah, Tobiah was a pain in Nehemiah's backside. Tobiah was one of the guys early on in the story who's saying, Nehemiah, you can't do this. You can't accomplish this. Your God is weak. Your people are weak. It's not gonna happen. The very guy who was against you who you had to have greater faith in God to overcome, now living in the temple. And he set up a nice pad with furniture, and Nehemiah goes in there, and he just tosses that stuff out. And you can notice the anger that Nehemiah has, and justifiably so. Because on the one hand, he loves God, and he loves these people, and he's worried about the condition of their hearts, but when he comes back, things are a mess. Have you had that experience? Have you had that experience where you're investing into someone, investing into something? It could be your own spiritual growth and something derails it. And you find yourself in six months, someplace you never thought you would be. When you look back six months ago, you're dancing on the walls. I mean, you were overwhelmed with God's love and presence and now you find yourself in there's confusion and darkness and the story just seems to end and you're wondering, what do I need? That's the story of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah is really, you know what it is? It's about a story of how revival goes bad. And you find this in every revival in history, whether it's in the Bible or in the New Testament or if it's in history itself. Every revival, you know, starts to have spark out. 
the passion for God, the pursuit of God, it eventually begins to dwindle. And that's the same thing that happens here. And so what we see in verses four through 14 We read that the people are neglecting the temple. Again, Tobias moved in in verses 15 through 20, the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and make it holy? No one's observing the Sabbath. Because see, to observe the Sabbath means you've got to sacrifice economically. Money can't be your goal. But the nations around Israel are saying, hey, money's the goal. And so Israel's like, okay, money's the goal. Let's not do the Sabbath anymore. It's too hard to sacrifice financially when everyone else is getting ahead and my worship of God is keeping me behind. We're not doing the Sabbath anymore. And then finally, in verses 22 through 31, they're intermarrying with the nations, which means the hearts of their sons and daughters are being taken away to other gods. The picture is an absolute mess. And I would imagine, I'd imagine Nehemiah has to be depressed and disappointed. Because realize they are back not where they were in chapter one, and and that's kind of a bad place in the beginning. When you read chapter one, it says that the nation of Israel was in disgrace and shame. That's where they are again, but they're really back to where they were before they were taken off into exile. Because these are the reasons that they were taken off into exile. They weren't obeying the Sabbath. They weren't honoring the temple. They were intermarrying. And so God came in and says, guys, I'm going to bring a little pain into your life to kind of clean up your vision. Have you ever had that? Consider it pure joy. You with me on that? Whenever you face trials of many kinds, you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Sometimes God allows things into our lives to purify our vision, to make us mature and complete. That's what's happening in the nation of Israel. God did not intend this to harm them. He intended it for good. But they just can't learn the lesson. They can't learn the lesson. And so again, if you look back at the text just for a moment, In verse 4, we see what Nehemiah has to deal with. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, so his job is to take care of the temple. And he starts starts turning it into little apartments. So Tobiah comes in, and Tobiah prepared for a large chamber. Notice what was previously in the chamber. All the offerings people had given to God. Hey, let's get all these offerings away, right? The grain, the wine, all of this that's given to God. And see, that stuff was supposed to be given to God, but it was also to feed the the priests and the Levites, all the people working in the temple. And where are those guys now? They're out in the field because, see, they have no food, they have no wine, they have nothing to take care of them. So because Tobiah's moving in and they're not really worshiping the temple, the temple servants are out in the fields working. And that's that's what Nehemiah comes back to. And he's like, what are you doing? They're neglecting the temple of God. And see, that's the very thing in chapter 10, verse 39. That's the very thing they said, hey, we're not going to do anymore. And Nehemiah 10, 39 says, we will not neglect the temple of God. And here they are in a few short chapters. They're right back where they began. And one of the worst things we can do is just to neglect, which means to ignore. Some of you may have grown up in a home where you felt neglected. And it's one thing to have bad parents. It's a great thing to have good parents. It's a terrible thing to have no parents, to just simply be ignored. And that's where God is in this situation with his own people. It's not just that you rejected me. It's like I have no weight in your life. They've ignored the worship of God. And then we find out they've also ignored the Sabbath. And if you look down in, uh, let, me, let me find it, in verse 19, In verse 19, they forget the Sabbath. And as soon as it began to grow dark, and notice what Nehemiah does. He kind of goes to the extreme. Before the great, it goes dark, 
Before the Sabbath, I commanded, notice, I commanded the doors be shut. You people, you can't handle it. I mean, he's coming in as a parent, right? Guys, you don't have the right and the privilege to make your own decision right now. I'm going to guard you. I'm going to shut the gates. And then he sent out all the merchants outside. And what he's doing at the end of it, he's yelling over the wall. He's like, you people, listen, get that. Just get out of here. You're ruining my people. I know you've set up against the wall and they're still outside, right? They're just waiting for the doors to open. Like, listen, these people let us back in. We know them well enough. And Nehemiah's yelling over the wall. And throughout this, what we see is this refrain where he says to God, God, remember me. Which I read as, God, I'm tired. D.A. Carson, who preached on this passage, said there's not only spiritual decline in the people of Israel, there seems to be some spiritual decline in Nehemiah. Because see, normally when trouble comes, he remembers God. He says, God, I remember your faithfulness. If you look back, there's a, a really big change of language in chapter 13. He's remembering God. He's worshiping God. He's talking about the future. But see, in chapter 13, he's at that place, I feel, of tired and discouraged where he says, God, just, just remember I tried. I did my best. Remember my faithfulness. They don't obey the Sabbath. They don't honor God's temple. And in verses 22 through 31, they start intermarrying among the people. Watch this in verse 25. And I confronted them. Here's where Nehemiah went to. And I cursed them. And I beat some of them. And I pulled out their hair. I mean, this is, he's serious. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your own sons. Then verse 30, it says, and thus I cleansed them from every foreign thing. Nehemiah is doing all he can physically to make a change spiritually. But see, you can only go so far externally to really make a change internally. And what they needed to see was not just a city restored. And that's the, in some ways what the story of Nehemiah is about, is a city that gets restored. The walls get restored. And it's one thing to restore walls. And it's great to see how God moves and how he accomplished this and how he brought people together. But what good is restored walls when the hearts of the people in the city are in ruin? And that's what God really wants. And what Nehemiah is trying to do, I think with the best of his ability, is to set up everything externally like a good parent to try to get their hearts in the right direction. But you know what he can't do? He can't change their hearts. And the one thing that Nehemiah most needs is to change their hearts, the one thing that he cannot bring about. And I want to suggest to you the whole story of Nehemiah is leading us really to the story of Jesus. That what Nehemiah points to is what all the prophets listen in the Old Testament they're talking about. I mean, they talk a lot about Israel. I'm like, Israel, guys, we're a mess. Why can't we get it together? How many times do we have to learn the same lesson? And as you read the story of Israel, like how many times will it take for them to learn the same lesson until you look at your own life? And you go, yeah. How many times will it take me to learn the same lesson? And you notice that really what you're reading in the story of the Old Testament is just human nature. That we're easily led astray. And that we chase after our own pleasures and our own desires. And fear should be enough to keep us from running from those things, running to those things, right? Because you remember how it went. You remember when you were tempted and you went in that direction and life, did it get better? No, it got worse. But you know what happened? Enough Grass began to grow, enough time began to go, the mind starts to forget, hey, maybe this time it's going to work, right? 
And you start running back to those things and you wonder what's going to keep me? What's gonna change me? And you put all these external things in place and those things are good. A little protection on the computer, can't go to those sites. A little change in accountability with people around me, some new business practices, some new relationships. And right, what do you do? Just like Nehemiah, I'm shutting the doors. <laughs> I'm not letting the people in. I'm kicking Tobiah out of the temple. I'm telling you, you can't marry these people. And he's setting up externally everything that's necessary. But could you imagine the frustration? But he can't produce the real change. And do you feel that way sometimes? Man, I'm trying God. I'm trying, I'm putting up everything externally I can. But see, what I really need is I need God to do something in my heart. And so I wanna suggest to you the story of Nehemiah leads us to this place for our need for Jesus. And our recognition, recognition that God's gotta come into us and listen, he's gotta do something new. And it's only that new thing that God can do that can really continue to take us in a new direction. Now, what does that mean? What does that sound like? I wanna take you to Ezekiel chapter 36. Two places we can go to, Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. Let's start with Ezekiel 36 and listen to what Ezekiel's dealing with. Same thing Nehemiah's dealing with. Ezekiel 36, verse 22, he's looking at the people and saying, guys, we're a mess. We can't get it together. I could shut all the doors I want. You're gonna still try to find a way around them. And notice in verse 22, and therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. God's gonna do something new. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Guys, you have made my name a laughingstock. But I'm not giving up on you. I'm gonna do something new. Verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations by the Israelites, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through, your vindicate, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, that sounds like some strong language, right? It's like we're expecting a bit of a whooping here. God's angry, he's vindicating his name, his holiness is coming. How is he gonna do it? Is he gonna shut some doors? You know, you can't go there anymore. He's gonna change the password. He's gonna kick Tobiah out. He says, no, I gotta go a lot deeper. Watch what happens. How does God vindicate his name? He changes hearts. Verse 24, and I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle you clean with water. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and I will give you a new spirit and I'll put a new spirit within you and I will restore the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How does God glorify himself? By changing people. God glorifies his name by changing the hearts of men and women who are in rebellion against him. That's us. You see, God calls us out of darkness into his light. I was once not a people, now I am a part of the people of God. I was an orphan, now I'm a son. And what God loves to do for his glory and his name is he loves to lavish grace and mercy and goodness on people who just don't deserve it. Because you notice he says, hey, this isn't for your sake, guys. 
I'm gonna choose you, but it's not gonna be your, for your sake. It's so that the nations will say, this is a marvelous, gracious, compassionate, merciful, holy God. I'm gonna change your heart. And see, that's what the prophets are waiting for. It's what Nehemiah is hoping for in everything that he's doing. He wants to see the people's hearts changed, but he can't accomplish it, not on his own. So what do we need from God? And what do we need to produce in ourselves so that the change that God is making in us is a change that continues over time is I think we need a holy desperation for God. Nehemiah had a holy ambition to see God do something great in his life. But see, what we need for God is a holy desperation to recognize the change that God wants to bring about is only something he can do. Now we have to set the conditions for change. So watch this, in Philippians chapter two, there's a relationship between what we do in our walk with God and what God does. Philippians two, verse 12. It says, and therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's my part. I gotta get my heart before the presence of God. But then notice what he says in verse 13. For it is God who works in you. It's God who works to will and to work according to his good pleasure. It's only God that ultimately can change our desires. Now, we can create the conditions for those desires to be changed. But he's saying the only way we can truly change is this. God has to come in and he has to make us new. And then begin to rewrite those desires, his desires on our hearts. How do we do this? The idea is after we place our faith and trust solely in Jesus, we must habitually place ourselves in God's presence. That after we trust in Jesus, we have to learn to habitually place ourselves in God's presence. And part of our mission, I think, at Bergen Park Church is to pursue the presence of God as we follow in the way of Jesus together. We are here to pursue the presence of God as we follow in the path of Jesus together. And what that looks like is that we have to learn as a community what it means to abide. Now, Jesus said, you want to bear fruit? It's simple. Abide in me. Meaning, be with me. You know, he is the vine and we are the branches. And we cannot produce fruit by ourselves unless we abide in him. And see, the purpose of everything we do as a church is really to help us to abide in Jesus. It's why we do community. Now, often we think abiding in Jesus is something I just figure out on my own. It's not. It's something you have to figure out with others. Because you know there's aspects of God's character I never learned by myself. I only learn that aspect of God's character through somebody else's life who I was sitting with. When I go to Africa, I've got a friend there who's a missionary. I have never seen somebody who believes more in the power of God than my buddy in Africa. Because he knows when he faces an obstacle... There isn't a donor behind the wall who's gonna give something at the last minute. He has no resources. He has no place to go. And I love getting around him because I experience the power of God and faith in the power of God in a way I don't experience in the United States because I always have material possessions I can trust in. And what I gotta do is I gotta get out of myself. I gotta go someplace else and sit down with somebody who's really trusting in God. And I start experiencing God for the first time in a new way because God shows up through him in ways he doesn't show up in me and allows me to experience more of God. That's what community does. It helps us to abide in Jesus so that when we're stuck, we may need to get near somebody with a little gray hair that's gone through a few experiences that maybe has lost a child or has lost a parent 
or has gone through a divorce or has gone through some kind of suffering. We have to get in community with others and people who are abiding with Christ so that what they've experienced and what they've gone through, it starts to, it starts to rub off on us. And that's really what the church is all about. It's about us together pursuing the presence of God as we follow in the way of Jesus. And church, the beauty is God starts to do that work in us. And as he starts to do the work in us to change our hearts, he puts people around us that we need strategically to keep our eyes on him. But you know what we often do? As he's starting to put those people in your life, we say, yeah, and we allow our pride to get in the way. Or we allow something about us to get in the way. Say, well, I don't want to be honest about what's going on in my life. I don't know if I can really trust these people. And all these excuses, right, start coming in. We start allowing the Tobias of the world to move back in. We start shutting down. We stop going to church. We stop giving and sacrificing. And we start making all these excuses. And all God wants to do is to come in and renovate us. And you know what? Jesus said the way that it's going to happen is you've got to start showing up like a child. Hate to say it. You know what children do? You make, hopefully, you make, you make a proposal to them and they say, okay. Now, sometimes they don't say okay, but they tend to trust. They tend to be open. They tend to be pliable in church. Are we in a place where we're just not pliable for the presence of God? We want to see change, but often we want to see change on our own timeline and in our own way. Instead of saying, God, I just want to abide in you I want you to allow you to work through me and then to get in the kind of community, to get in scripture, get in prayer in a way that we're allowing God to work through us as we pursue the presence of God together. That's what the church is about. Hey, this morning as we celebrate and we conclude with communion, uh, it's a time for us to reflect. And, and for some of us, maybe to confess what it is that's keeping us, that's holding us back. It could be that God has told us things, this is what I want you to pursue and, and like the people of Israel, we've just forgotten. We've ignored it. And as we hold the communion elements together, it's an opportunity for us just to say, Lord, would you begin that work again in me? You who began the good work, you're faithful to complete it. And so, Father, just I, I know that I need you. And so I want to give you the opportunity, if you didn't grab the elements on the way in, they're available. The communion elements are in the back. They're also in the front. Let's take those elements together. And as Stephen comes up, wherever Stephen is, to play, Let's spend some time in reflection as we seek the Lord together.